0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today I have not one, but two amazing authors. All right. So before I introduce them, this is really interesting. There's a really interesting way that these kind of episodes lined up. All right. So if any of you listened to the previous episode with Charles Love about his new book, Race Crazy, uh, he had some. You know uh, opinions about the prison system and everything like that, and he's against the defunding of the police. Well, today's guests are on the opposite end of this, and they actually believe we should abolish uh, the prison system. So today's guests are Victoria Law and Maya Shinwar. All right, so they co-authored the book "Prison by Any Other Name," and they've written a ton of stuff. They they've written books, they've written uh, a ton of articles and everything, which I'll link down in the description below. But, anyways. This is something that I'm very passionate about. I actually wrote a piece over on my Substack the other day. And by the way, my Substack is free. You should go check it out. It's the rewired soul.substack.com. I talked about the terrible branding of the idea of defund the police. All right. Because I think once a lot of people understand what defund the police actually means, uh, you know, they're a little bit more on board. But Maya and Victoria, they actually... Discuss in their book about abolishing the prison system, but it goes much further than that. So, one of the reasons I'm passionate about this is because I'm a recovering drug addict. And I'm letting you guys know right now the only thing that separates me from people who have spent so much time in jail and in prison, the only thing that separates me from them is pure luck. All right. During my drug addiction, during my alcoholism, I wasn't an angel. I just never got. Caught, all right. So there's no reason why I should be living this life of freedom without consequence, just because I didn't get caught. But also, what Maya and Victoria do an excellent job of discussing in this conversation and in their book is that the way our prison systems are set up, it it doesn't rehabilitate uh, rehabilitate people. It doesn't prevent anything. We suck at keeping people out of prison. And we also discuss the prison industrial complex, all right? A lot of these are issues with capitalism and all the people making money off of this stuff. So Maya and Victoria talk about, you know, what they they are fighting for, um, what uh, abolishing prisons actually looks like. I, you know, push them up against the ropes a little bit and be like, hey, what about the people who are against this? You know, and they actually, you know, they they have some good answers for this so I wanted to introduce this conversation all of you but you know most of their book uh actually the entirety of this book prison by any other name it's all about what happens after prison right we talk a lot about what happens in prisons uh how they suck at rehabilitating people and all that stuff but what about you know ankle monitoring what about mandatory you know mental health or addiction treatment and all these other things What about probation and parole? What about the things that happen after prison? That's what this book's about. And I learned so much because it's not something that a lot of us think about. So I'm super glad that they were able to come on. And like I said, it contrasts with Charles Love's episode uh, quite a bit. So I'd be curious your thoughts. So make make sure you head down in the description, make sure you're following both Victoria and Maya, as well as their websites. But grab a copy of this book. It's so important to learn about these things. You know, uh, they they do a great job uh, discussing people's different personal experiences. And I think it's important too, to know the background and history of what led people to these lives where, you know, they ended up in prison because it's not, always oh, so black and white. So anyways, before we get started, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new here, make sure you're following and subscribe to the podcast because I always have great authors on here. I've been doing some bonus episodes and everything like that. So make sure that you're following. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Victoria Law and Maya chinoir about their book, Prison by Any Other Name. All right. Hello, Maya and Victoria. Thanks so much for joining me today. And we're going to be talking about your phenomenal book that you co-wrote together, Prison by Any Other Name. So before we get started, for for my audience who who isn't aware of your amazing work, can you both kind of introduce yourself and a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah. So this is Maya talking and I'm the editor in chief of the social justice news website Truth Out. And I've been writing and editing about prisons and the prison industrial complex for about 15 years. I'm also involved in organizing efforts around prison abolition. And I currently organize with the collective Love and Protect here in Chicago. And I co-authored Prison by Any Other Name with Vicki, and I'm also the author of Locked Down, Locked Out,
2: Why Prison Doesn't Work, and How We Can Do Better. This is Victoria. Um, I am, in addition to Maya's co-author of Prison by Any Other Name, I'm a freelance journalist and author that focuses on issues of incarceration. Um, So I write about ways in which mass incarceration impacts individuals, families, and communities, and all of the ways it also intersects with so many other issues on the outside, such as housing and communication and privacy. Um, My other books are Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and in quotes, Prisons Make Us Safer, and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration. I'm also a co-founder of Books Through Bars New York City, which sends free books to people incarcerated across the country.
0: Oh, that sounds pretty awesome. So yeah, I, I I'm actually about to pick up both of your other books. I've been buried in books lately, but but yeah, I I only recently became like really invested and passionate about like kind of prison reform and stuff. Um, as most of my audience knows, and you two ladies know, like I'm a recovering addict, and that's when I like when I got sober, and you know, like I you know, luck played such a huge factor in my own addiction and recovery. Like I I should have been to jail. I should have just marks on me. I shouldn't be able to get jobs and stuff, but it was a thousand percent just because I never got caught. Right. So when I got sober and I was in sober living with people who, you know, had felonies or, you know, they were in drug court programs and, you know, I never, I thought I was cool because I never had to get my little paper signed at like 12 step meetings and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, as I, as I continued to kind of look at everything as a whole, I saw how messed up our prison system is. And I'm curious for, for both of you, so am I like, what what made you get into this? Because i I'm I'm learning that a lot of people are just like, oh, bad people go to prison. You know, so what inspired you to kind of take a look at this or or when did you have an aha moment like, hey, this is kind of messed up and we should probably do something?
2: Okay. Well, um, so my I guess introduction to the prison system it came when I was in high school. So I went to a high school which we didn't, uh, which we would now call a school-to-prison pipeline high school. Meaning, mm-hmm. school mimics the logic of prison, in which it is mostly for Black, Brown, immigrant, low-income students who don't have whose families don't have resources to send them elsewhere, to either like a specialized school or to borrow an address of a better resource school. So these, uh, the school I went to, which was typical of many of these schools, was overcrowded. Um, it was mostly, again, black, brown, and immigrant. Every morning you had to walk to metal detectors and uh, put your, uh, your bag through an x-ray machine as if you were going into a jail or prison. Um, a lot of times the classrooms were overcrowded. So the teachers could only focus on people who were either like the brightest in the class or... The worst behaving in the class, and Mm. you know, you just fell through the cracks because if you have an overcrowded classroom, that's just the way it is. Um, and these were perfect recruiting grounds for gangs and for listeners who might be like, Well, why would you join a gang? Think about all the dumb things you did when you were 14, 15, 16, 17, even 19. Um, and now think about what kind of decisions you would make if you were in this school environment that didn't offer any promise of better opportunities. Their families were struggling financially and maybe in other ways. And somebody comes along and says to you, Hey kid, how would you like to make 200, $300 in mm-hmm. And so many of my friends joined gangs, ended up dropping out of school, got arrested for gang related activity and went to Rikers Island, which in New York city is our island devoted to jails there are 10 jail buildings on rikers island the majority of people are there being held pending trial so they've been arrested but they have not had a day in court yet and that was my introduction to incarceration we had this giant island that held people pre-trial and they held them for months and months and sometimes years um while they were awaiting trial and many times people pled guilty to be able to move on with their lives whether you we go upstate and do your prison sentence and get home sooner or plead guilty so that you could just get off this island uh, and that was my introduction that we had this and at the time i was a teenager i didn't understand you know how to put this all in context but i did understand that i had this school system that was very very under resourced and under mm-hmm. and then there was this giant island that you could go and get locked up in that seemed to be very resourced and very funded, you know, for, for people like me and my friends to get yeah. stuck in. How about you, Maya?
1: Yeah, so I had kind of a dual introduction to the system that got me interested in writing about it. So initially, before, before I kind of developed the notion that this is what I wanted to focus on, When I was in high school and early in college, I was an anti-war activist and actually first an anti sanctions activist. And I was organizing with this radical collective that broke the sanctions in order to um, save people's lives Mm -hmm. in Iraq in particular. And... A number of the people involved in the movement would be spending time in prison and jail. And I definitely, prior to that, it's not that I ever thought that the prison system was just, or I just wasn't really thinking about it that much. But I had these experiences where I would be visiting people in jail or prison based on their activism that was defying imperialism and war. Yeah. So that was something that that definitely got me interested in writing about it. And then a little bit later than that, a friend of mine was deported. And before he was deported, he was incarcerated. And he was incarcerated just in a county jail a lot of times, immigrant detention just happens in a county jail. And I remember I went to visit him with his mom right before he was deported. And his mom, through some loophole, was not being deported. And we went to visit, and I was just struck by the fact that we're on this side of this plexiglass wall talking on the phone. You know, they've got those phones on either side of the wall. And that his mother was not going to be able to hug him before he was reported. And she wasn't going to see him in person for at least 10 years following that. And just the stark injustice of that was really my introduction to the fact that this system was, was fundamentally wrong. And that you couldn't really make make excuses for a system like that because It was purely inherently violent. Mm -hmm. And then after that, so I started writing about the jail and prison system after that. That was kind of like the spark that did it. And then about a year later, my sister was incarcerated. And she was then incarcerated on and off for the next 14 and a half years after that. And so that was like, I, I was already writing about it, but then that really deepened my commitment and showed me all sides of the system that were just so fundamentally wrong. And you can't say broken, you know, because mm-hmm. obviously set up like that and and built on systems of white supremacy and capitalism that made it. So that's how it's supposed to be. but yeah i think once you have the personal contact with that system there's really no way to justify it
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah just uh, you know listening to both your stories and everything. whenever I, I i think about this topic like i get i get riled up right like you know just because there's there's so many things like you know when victoria was talking stuff like like these uh school to prison pipelines or you know um uh, just you know, my my experience with addiction, like, you know, I come from an an addict family, right? Like my mom, she got sober when I was when I was about twenty and she helped me get sober. But anyways, it feels, you know, like the the larger part of the population like completely neglects these situations right where people are from how were they were raised and what opportunities they have uh, i I've, I've been diving into you know this whole idea of like oh well you know we have a meritocracy in the United States and you just work hard you can get out of that school system and get out of that neighborhood and I'm like no that's not how it works because we don't come out of the womb just like hey guess what I can do no there's a lot of social influences and there's, there's always certain things that we could do coming from different backgrounds and it's, it's boggles. But what I, what I loved about the book was you, you two focused on an aspect of the prison system that I don't even think of that much, which is what happens after, right? Like, so if, if you two can kind of discuss like why, why, You decided to focus on this, like what you noticed with that, Um, because for me, the only aspect I really thought of was just seeing a lot of people in recovery go right back to jail. But I thought it was because because of, you know, all the restrictions they had after. And I'm like, how do you expect a person to get on their feet and not turn back to whatever they were doing? if things are so, so difficult. So what are, what are some of the, for those who have yet to read the book, what are some of the aspects of after the, after people get out that are major issues?
1: All right, I can go. <laughs> yeah, so I think that there are a couple of things. One, we discussed in our book, both some of the phenomena that we talk about, are systems that happen or can happen after someone is released. And some of them are programs or systems where people are diverted instead of going to prison. And those can function kind of alongside each other. There are certain things like probation slash parole or treatment centers or that type of thing that people could be diverted or they could go after. And the thing that all of these systems and programs have in common that Vicky and I wrote about is that they're framed as kind of kinder, gentler alternatives mm-hmm. and reform that actually are improving or providing better alternatives to prisons and jail. And I think that on the surface A lot of people who would consider themselves liberal would look at some of these reforms, like electronic monitoring, like mandated drug treatment centers, mandated psychiatric institutions, um, extended probation sentences, all of that, and say, yes, this is what we have to be doing because we have to be decreasing mass incarceration. And the problem there is that we see so many of these systems. Creating a kind of prison light. So in terms of electronic okay. monitoring, actually creating prisons inside people's homes oh, yes. where they can't leave, sometimes even for emergency medical care, where they can't really find good ways of getting jobs. Sometimes they can't even go grocery shopping or mm-hmm. get their garbage out. But that's considered the kinder, gentler alternative. And in meanwhile, in that situation, They are not being provided for They're not being given food or housing or anything like that. So you can also see how that neoliberal state is working in there. Like, oh, this is an alternative where you don't even have to do that for people. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that when we look at these alternatives, some of which are avenues that people go into after prison, we're not saying this is worse than prison. Or this is exactly like prison. We're saying that even though many people might prefer, for example, probation to prison, although not everybody actually, because a lot okay. of time that actually diverts you back to prison when you violate the restrictions. But most people would prefer an alternative. But we shouldn't look at that and say, oh, and that means these things are great. Yeah. We should look at that and say, why are our, imaginations so shrunken so small that all we can imagine is some other type of prison even if it's a little less restrictive
0: yeah i i I think when i was reading the book you you two brought up so many so many stories that would have never crossed my mind such as like you know, oh, like people would think, like, I would think like, oh, ankle monitor, you're at home, you got TV, you got stuff, you know, you're with your family, but you like bring up a situation where someone had like a medic, like a a family member had a medical emergency and they can't like leave the house where you talk about, you know, how it impacts families and, and people come home and they're trying to repair relationships with their children. And then a kid just takes off down the street and what are you going to do? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, this is, this is bonkers. But Here's a question. And and Victoria, since your latest book is kind of about this, like myths about prison making us safer. Here's the thing, because I'm always trying to figure out like how to talk to others about this. And the 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 conventional wisdom is people go to jail because they're bad. They're a danger to society. We gotta lock them up. We gotta get them away from us because they're gonna rob and bug and you know and steal and kill and all these other things. But that's often not the case. So so without spoiling your, your newer book, like how, how, how is that a myth? Like that all the people in prison are dangerous because when I even hear ankle monitors or probation, it's like, well, we gotta keep an eye on them for a little bit and stuff. And I, I think that'd be the number one challenge we have for convincing others that we need to change this stuff.
2: Well, first of all, we have to remember that arrest, prosecution and imprisonment comes after Something has happened.
1: Mm. So
2: it doesn't prevent people. So listeners might think, like, okay, if you look back on the past 48 hours of your life, how many times have you been aggravated about something or gotten angry or upset at somebody? Or how many times, you know, and think about whether or not you did not lash out or act in some highly inappropriate way because you feared prison. Or if you, Maybe briefly thought about it and realized that was not an appropriate response to somebody who cut you off in traffic or cut in front of you in the supermarket or, you know, was rude to you on the subway. So um, so if you think about the ways in which people act and react, it is not necessarily a fear of prison. And then when we think about the United States having the, niche, uh, the world's highest incarceration rate, we have 5% of the world's population and something like 30% of the world's prison population, we should be the safest nation in the world. We should not have headlines every week that scream about mass shootings happening and um, people being found, you know, like uh, murdered. And we should not have these high rates of people being killed, people being sexually assaulted, people being assaulted. Because if prison equaled safety, we would have imprisoned our way out of all of these forms of violence. And instead, what we're seeing again and again and again is that we are not imprisoning our way out of violence or danger. Instead, what we're doing is we are simply imprisoning people and we're not putting the kinds of social safety nets and social supports that people need to be able to be safe from violence or to have other alternatives because nobody comes, nobody's comes to violence by enacting it on somebody else the first time. They come to violence because that has been done to them first and that is a learned behavior over time. So what happens if we had put more, if we as a nation put more resources into addressing violence when it happens to children at a young age, when it happens to adolescents, when it happens to young adults, rather than waiting until it's built up and then it coalesces into that person also harming someone else. So electronic monitoring doesn't make people or prevent violence. It only addresses something after the fact. And I also want to add that electronic monitoring is often not used for people who are accused or convicted of violence. It is often a net, what we call a net widener, which means you don't want to spend the resources to send that person to prison, but you want to do something for that to them to keep them under some sort of surveillance. So it might be something like drunk possession. You need to be on an ankle monitor now, whereas before you might get, okay, don't do it again. Or you might, or probation might be something that you get for a crime that is considered not violent and not serious. So instead of being able to go on with your life, now you're under some sort of supervision that makes it harder for you to go on with your life. It makes it harder for you to go look for work. It makes it harder for you to Pick your children up from school. It makes it harder for you to run errands for your family, you know, and be able to do things that we should all be able to do as part of our family and community fabric, like going to the grocery store, you know, taking out the garbage, you know, picking up person A, B, or C from school, from daycare, driving a sibling to dialysis, et cetera. And you can't do all of these things if you are under some sort of supervision, but it doesn't address. Why you might have you know uh, been possessing illegal substances in the first place, or any of the other fairly minor criminalized actions that people often end up on electronic monitoring or probation for?
0: Yeah, and <laughs> and like you were talking about too, just you know, it is after the fact and. You know, that's that's something else that I, I I just it drives me bonkers. And I wish I could educate more people or, you know, make them care about, you know, the upbringing of people who commit these things. Right. Like how like it, it seems like just logical, like take a step back. How many people in, you know, who commit crimes just grew up in an amazing household with a stable family and everything was good. And they're like, hey, I'm going to turn to a life of crime or I'm going to, you know, get hooked on drugs like, mo- you know, from working in treatment, like most people who came through there had extremely traumatic childhoods, right? Like, physical, verbal, sexual abuse, like regularly and stuff, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, if people heard these stories, they'd be like, oh yeah, no wonder why you're getting that coming from that environment. And, and it just seems like people don't take that into account. And, you know, I'm a parent and the way I, I look at it now that I'm nice and sober and stuff like that, I'm like, if my kid screws up, like that's, that's a lot on me, but you know, we're not looking at the communities, and like like you two talk about, like, where are the preventative measures, right? How do we how do we help out parents? How do we build better communities so children have support, and you know they're not worrying about their parents putting food on the table or paying rent or you know and all these things because stressed out parents don't treat their kids too well because they're worried about all these other things, and it's it's such a social issue and and i'm glad you two are on here too because i am regularly thinking like oh okay like every problem i see i'm like oh capitalism is a massive you know problem with this and you know when you're talking about like the ankle monitors and stuff and widening the net or or probation and you know uh i've worked with a lot of people who had to get uh breathalyzers in their car there is so much money being made in this industry even after the fact and outside jails so, you know, like, do you think, do you think it has to start there and people recognize that this is, this is not about safety. It's not about prevention. A lot of it has to do with money. Like, how do we, how do we convey that to people? So they kind of get it.
1: So I think there's, a, there's a couple of answers here. Cause you're absolutely right that there's a lot of money in this, And a lot of corporations are profiting off of these systems and it's agonizing to watch it happen. Just this morning I got a promotional email from one of the one of the prison phone companies saying, we haven't heard from you in a while. And like, hey, here's some special deals you can get and enter yourself in a raffle. And like, you haven't heard from me. And will be because, fortunately, like a couple people that I was talking to actually got out of prison. You know, that's good news. But so no, that's just one example, actually, of, of this kind of exploitation and uh, just exploitative capitalism is prison phone companies. That's low hanging fruit, right? Charging families who have practically no money these people exorbitant phone rates just to talk to their family members behind bars. But I think another another thing that we have to pay attention to is that these private corporations are not the root cause of the prison industrial complex. And Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about this in terms of parasites so these corporations are actually parasites on the system. They are taking advantage of these horrible structures and they're sucking money out, you know, and, and benefiting themselves. And certainly they're, they're contributing to some of the problems. There's no question about that. But the systems were not built on top of those corporations. Those corporations are profiting off of these dismal systems and but that doesn't mean that capitalism isn't playing a a major role in building those systems up and I think one one thing that we have to keep in mind in terms of the frame is this this notion it, it was never just capitalism it was always racial capitalism so capitalism and racism have always been intertwined capitalism has always been racialized like from the beginning centuries and centuries and that the current prison system is one manifestation of that just as slavery was and when we look at that we also see all kinds of other intersections and we see how that system is set up to basically contain and Disappear so called surplus populations under capitalism. This is another thing that Ruth Wilson Gilmore has introduced and talked about. So, this includes many Black and Brown people, as well as disabled people, trans people, homeless people, drug users, and like kind of condemning certain people to disposability is is definitely a regular practice under racial capitalism. So even beyond the profits of corporations, that's, that's built into the structure, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, just thinking about all the, the layers and everything getting connected. That's when I, that's when I started getting a little pessimistic. I'm like, oh, okay, so we're hopeless because there's, there's so many things mixed into this, this pond and you got to separate them. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, you, you two touch on it quite a bit when you get into the solutions. It's just, you know, it starts with us and communities and, you know, and, and a lot of it's just recognizing, the issues um you know that that are going on and turning a blind eye, like you know, even last year with uh all the black lives matter protests and stuff and the debates and everything, and you know i've I've had multiple authors on here just talking about you know racial biases because i'm I'm a huge psychology nerd, and I'm just like to deny that these exist right, when we were like evolved for tribalism and in group or out groups you know inverse group out groups like. Like, oh, yeah, it, it happens when you go to like a football game, but but not with different races. Like what? Like it drives me nuts. But but I did want to ask you to because so, you you talk uh, about mental health care and treatment and stuff. And that's my jam. Right. So I, I'm curious because, you know, you have some criticisms of, you know, uh, uh you know, people being forced to go to, you know, treatment. Uh, whether it's mental health and stuff like that. And so I'm curious, because just from my personal experience, it's been very helpful. So I'm like, are there better solutions? Or is it is it hurting? Because just for example, if I look back at my personal addiction, right, like I, I needed high levels of accountability, I was multiple relapses, just chronic relapsing. And I finally got sober in a sober living where I had a curfew and I had to check in. And, you know, I was talking with somebody, they were talking about how like, you should be able to have your cell phone. I'm like, I would have called drug dealers so fast. You know what I mean? So I'm just, you know, now that I have you two here, like, what are some of the primary issues that I might be missing? And what are some alternative solutions to that aspect of mental health and addiction treatment that would be or just a, yeah, trading addiction that isn't inside of a soul. Well,
2: I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that what works for one person isn't necessarily a giant, like the most restrictive form of treatment should not be like the go-to because then what we're doing is basically replicating uh, the prison in our other, you know, areas. So, you know, so you said what worked for you was like, you needed that confinement and that, you know, uniformity, but for other people, they say this doesn't work for me you know this reminds me of prison or this is re-traumatizing me in ways in which um in which that originally had me going to like go use substances and like lose myself in this so i mean what we have to like think about is that people need help and they want help but they don't necessarily want to be thrown into a prison-like structure um, we interviewed people who had sought mental health treatment or uh drug treatment and found themselves locked away. Again, like you said, like, you know, your cell phone is taken away. You don't have access to your family. Um, you're told when to get up, when you can go to sleep. You're not allowed to touch other people except for when the nurses give you a shot or if you are seen to be acting out in quotes. Um, and acting out could be you start crying and they think that that is inappropriate. You might have, a, you know, staff come and basically manhandle you, you know, and put you in a straitjacket and put you in a room that you cannot get out of, you know? So they don't call it solitary confinement, but you're locked away in a room with nothing else. Um, And these are all similarities to prison. You lose all of your bodily autonomy. You are told when you can get up, when to sleep, you know, what you can eat, that you have to take your medicines. If you don't take your medicines, they will force you to take your medicines. You can be physically punished. You know, you can be restrained and oftentimes these places are not places where you can receive basic support and help, you know, um, and instead it just punishes you and forces you to try to conform to what, uh, the establishment, whether it be like the people in charge of the drug treatment center or the people in charge of, uh, the mental health facilities see as normal and, you know, normalized and able to be freed but it doesn't address underlying causes. Um, We interviewed one woman, a woman named, a black woman named Stacy who voluntarily checked herself into a drug treatment center and said that basically it was worse than being in jail. Uh, She went to, you know, she was not allowed to talk to her family Uh, when there was a family emergency. She was not allowed to contact them. She was not allowed to, you know, uh, go, you know, like go to a family member's funeral when that happened. But also she said that she was put in these groups called encounter groups. And rather than being supportive groups in which you could share what, you know, like try trying to figure out what, you know, got you to the point where you were using substances. What were the things? Instead, a person was placed in a chair in the middle of the room and people yelled at them. And I am not a psychology nerd. I am not a psychiatry nerd, but my understanding of counseling and treatment and therapy is that you're not supposed to just yell at people, you know, and call them all sorts of derogatory names and make them feel worse about themselves. Um, But this was the kind of thing that she was, uh, this was the kind of quote unquote treatment that this center offered. Um, When she told them that she wanted to leave, she she was told to sit on a chair in the hallway. You know, for three days, she was allowed to get up and go to the bathroom. She was allowed to you know like uh eat meals, but basically, it was just like putting a toddler in an extensive time out simply because she tried to exert her authority to say, "I voluntarily checked myself into this rehab. This is not working for me. I want to leave and they said, go sit on the chair for three days um and she finally left uh she immediately, you know, went off and used and that, that very restrictive punitive environment did nothing to help her, you know, with what she needed. She later found another inpatient rehab that did not treat people as if they were criminals or people who were in need of punishment. And she said that that was what helped her all, you know, finally get off substances. Uh, Also, there was a woman, we didn't interview her for this book, but both Maya and I have like talked to her for other projects, a woman named Susan Burton, who had spent 17 years of her life in and out of jails, prisons, and prison-like drug rehabs, stemming from lots of sexual abuse when she was a child. And then also um, a police officer running over and killing her five-year-olds and never being held accountable for this so you can see that there's a lot of trauma in place and as a black woman from a low income community you know she just kept getting funneled through these systems that didn't work kept punishing her never got to root causes and finally her brother which you know made some money in the music industry said i'm going to pay for you to go to this nice drug treatment center in santa monica california what we call a form for white ladies drug rehab and she said there You know, you were given your own room, you could go in and out. She was treated like a human being who had substance use addiction issues rather than as an addict who needed to be surveilled and confined and punished every time she strayed. And she said that was what finally worked for her, you know. But she said, I wouldn't have been able to access this if my brother had not made money and not said, I want my sister to be able to have a healthy life without the use of substances and without this constant threat of prison hanging over her. But if her brother had not made that money, she would not have been able to afford this. So I think it's, you know, people need help, people want help, but what they don't want is to be punished for needing help. And this is all too often what ends up being, you know, the the default is you ask for help and we're going to put you in this punitive setting until you stop asking for help.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's that's all so right. And I I wanted to just mention, so Chris, you mentioned that like semi-confining situations actually helped you overcome your addiction, which is something we definitely heard from people and I've definitely seen with some of the people I'm close to and I think that one of the things that's kind of an overriding characteristic throughout research and lead, totally what we've experienced is that when people choose to pursue recovery, even if it's a like a fleeting choice, like, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to check myself in. That's really different from going in front of a judge and a judge saying, you are mandated to this, we're going to carry you off in handcuffs and then you're going to go to this thing instead of prison. It's just often such a different outcome because when people choose, when it's even like just, even if it's just a a small choice that someone's making in one moment to say, I want to get better, this this is the route that I'm choosing to go then that's a different situation than some authority figure of saying, you're going here. If you don't succeed, then you're going to prison. So it's just like, it's a very different framing. And it's a very different sense of powerlessness that like your phone might be taken away. But if if you came in with the goal of getting sober, then that's different than if you came in because a judge said you can't go any place except there. And if you don't go here, you're going to prison. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like agency is one of our, our big things when we don't feel like we get to make these choices and, you know, and, and as you were talking, Victoria, I was thinking about it too, like uh, (laughs) like, especially those two different, stories and and, you know and when she was able to go to the rich white lady one you know the treatment center i worked at like one of the reasons i started the rewired soul the treatment center i was working at 30 grand for a month if you didn't have insurance like it was here in las vegas it was nice we had a fountain in front and everything it was beautiful and yeah we had like a a like a really good chef there like you were in good hands but you know and sometimes i would ask the clients too i'm like hey have any of you been to like a state funded facility and they're like you know, and that's what it kind of sounds like. But there's such a lack of regulation. Like, I don't know if you've ever like researched what's going down in Florida with addiction treatment, but it is a hot mess. Like, it, people are just making money, just getting people high, just to bring them back in and make money out their insurance country. Like, it's it's crazy. So I'm, I'm starting to wonder, like. Is this, you know, something that needs like a whole like overhaul where there's more regulation, you need more licensing? Because, you know, in certain states, like the issue in Florida is I could just move down to Florida and say, hey, I got to I have a sober living. Right. And I don't need any credentials, any certificate, nothing like you could just start it up. I don't know if it's changed in like recent years, but it was bad. Like we even sent clients down there for sober living after treatment. And then we stopped because the whole state was just messed up. and. You know, like, and then I, I just go back to thinking about this whole, like, just capitalist system where insurance companies are making insane amounts of money. And I'm like, well, what if we just kind of like have this kind of social health care system? <laughs> but, but, you know, to to kind of go towards the, the solution that you two talk about in the book, which is like abolishing the prison systems, right? So all, all I know is last year when people said defund the police, everybody lost their minds, right? Like they think like this just means like full on anarchy. And I'm like, I'm just like, no, that's not what they're talking about. So with the idea of abolishing prisons for anybody who's like, okay, these two are insane. Can you kind of break it down? Like, what what does that look like with we abolish prisons? Because I guess like what I'm thinking is, you know, take the drug addict, hey, you go to prison or you go to drug court. But if we just said, hey, do whatever you want. What does that look like? How does the rest of society feel safe in that kind of environment?
2: Well, the idea of abolition of prisons is not just get rid of, you know, all accountability and we live in Mad Max world. And if if you don't, you know, survive too bad, so sad for you. It's the idea that prison and all of, to quote, critical resistance, which is an abolitionist organization started by um, folks like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis and other long-term Prison abolitionists, it's that prison and all of its manifestations cannot be reformed to meet people's needs or to be more humane, um and they have to be eliminated and replaced with resources and supports that actually meet people's needs effectively and address and reduce harms. So what does that look like then, if you are someone who you know keeps getting arrested for substance use and actions because of those substance use. So not just, and get arrested for drug possession but also maybe you keep robbing people at the atm to feed your drug you know to get to to get money to get drugs you know to feed your addiction you know like what? what does that look like it doesn't look like yeah you just get to go rob people at atms it's you know what what needs to happen so that you can you know curb your substitutes you know so That could be a variety of things. It could be, you know, like uh, on an individual level, like maybe you go to a treatment that works for you. Maybe, and you've talked about this on some of your other uh, episodes, you know, like it might look like wholesale decriminalization or legalization of substances so that that way you're not having to go rob people for, you know, for money to go buy heroin, you know, like you can go to your pharmacy or your supermarket or wherever, you know, like whatever that looks like. Um, to get your substances, you know, but what does it look like then for the person that you might have harmed? All these people at ATMs that you've robbed, you know, maybe that looks like, uh, you know, like some sort of restorative justice process in which the people who are harmed get to sit down and say, this is what I need in order to heal. Because the person who is robbed at an ATM is given a choice of go to court and testify against this person and hope that they get sent away to prison or do nothing. And if you're given these two choices, people might say, okay, i will go to court. They might say, I'm going to do nothing because you have to remember that the majority of people of arrest do not actually end in a conviction anyway. So they might say, no, I don't want to go sit in court and look at this person and have to, you know, relive this trauma over and over and over. They might be like, you know, I want to go, you know, I want to go home. But you know, these two choices do not give that person say um, counseling and mental health treatment. Um, it does not give that person you know like a a paid sick day or a week of paid sick days so that they can stay home and kind of like try to figure out like what they need to heal. As as opposed to being like, I just got robbed at an ATM and I'm expected to get up and go to work the next day and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that as if nothing had happened. You know, it doesn't give them extra child care so that that way they don't have to deal with a, you know, a, a very active toddler while they're also trying to make sense of this very traumatic action that just happened to them. It doesn't. So, you know, rely on policing and prosecution and the criminal legal system doesn't, you know, provide for the person who was the victim. It just says, go to court and testify, you know, uh, tell your story to the police, tell your story to the prosecutors, tell your story to the jury and tell it in a way that is believable as well. So, you know, what we have to think about is that what we have right now, prisons and punishment does not address the needs of the person, the underlying causes of why somebody might be committing harm or violence, and it does not address the needs of the person who was harmed or who was violated um, by this person's actions. Instead, what it does is it puts resources into sending that person away and it puts no resources virtually no resources into helping anyone on either side here.
0: yeah yeah and yeah speaking of resources I, I i think about that you know uh, you know when we talk about you know defunding the police or just even community resources whenever anything comes up everybody's like Whoa, oh where are we going to get the money and all the taxes but like last year we saw like the police looking like they're like taking over a small country with a bajillion dollars that we're giving them in equipment and weapons and stuff. It's like, well, what if we took a section of that to help these communities? Right. Or like you said, to help the victims, I actually, you know, at the time of recording this yesterday, I had, uh, Laura Bazelon on here, um, you know, talking about wrongful convictions and things like that. And something that doesn't get addressed properly is what happens to the victims, right. And the trauma they go through. And, 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 and like you just mentioned, something as simple as giving them a day off to recoup and, you know, deal with this because in this system that we have where we got to work, 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 and you get X amount of paid days, people can barely get time off if they just had a baby, you know, like it's, it's bonkers. And we just keep kind of filling, uh, feeding this system. And, you know, I, I got a couple more questions cause I want to, like for everybody listening i i believe like so many of these solutions start with us right and one issue i've been dying to talk with both of you about right is like this idea of forgiveness okay because you know there's you know when people get out of prison you know and they have like a mark on their 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 you know list of like oh they they did a robbery or they did this like 10 years ago right um here in las vegas i don't know if there's like state by state or what, but I used to work in the car industry. And if you like ever had a DUI, like you were just screwed. Right. But anyways, this idea of like forgiveness and growing and changing is something that I'm very passionate about. Cause if you two met me in 2012, when I was at rock bottom, it would have been bad news. I'm not this lovable smiling guy. I was a, I was not a great person. Right. So I I've seen how people can grow and change, but here's a question I have for both of you. You're both on the internet right and there's a lot of outrage you have people you have just things like that pop up from years ago and they're like never give this person jo- a job again right so i look at this and i'm very left leaning progressive and one of our one of our traits is that we're very like compassionate and forgiving but it seems like there's a lot of like you screwed up in the past no right and i've wondered do you think and i hope i'm like explaining this properly do you think that feeds into a lack of forgiveness for people who have committed crimes because in other aspects we're we're, we're pushing this idea, like, no, you can't grow. You screwed up six years ago. You said something dumb on Twitter. You know, I kind of see these, I'm like, well, how are we going to fix the prison system? We can't even forgive somebody who said a dumb tweet 10 years ago. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I think it's this, this complex question of whether not, Punishing someone and finding constructive ways to deal with a problem is the same as forgiveness. Because we don't necessarily have to forgive someone for wronging us. Right. That's not a responsibility of a victim. Like if someone commits violence against me, I don't have to forgive them in order for them, in order to believe that they shouldn't go to prison. Right. And so similarly. I think about, I think about the idea of punishment on a broad scale and how what we need if we're thinking about seriously abolishing prisons. And in our book, we talk about not only abolishing the institution of prison, but abolishing policing, surveillance, and confinement, you know, incarceration. And so thinking of that broadly as a practice, you're thinking about, okay, we don't we don't wanna do these things to try to address our problems, but that doesn't mean there's no accountability. That doesn't mean that we're not finding creative ways to actually hold people accountable. Since as, as Vicky described, these current systems don't provide accountability or justice or any kind of support for the victim. Now, in terms of, so I see policing and and surveillance as things that happen from authority, positions of authority and systems of oppression. So I wouldn't necessarily equate that with what's going on on Twitter um, or what's happening, you know, in terms of these these kind of like pylons where people are saying this person can can never come here again. and with those, I mean, I personally don't participate in that. I'm actually taking a several week break from Twitter right now while I'm I'm on sabbatical. Um, and I, I feel like those, those types of things don't necessarily um, result in, in something productive in most cases. Of course, there are certain cases like with Trump. We're getting them off Twitter with actually like amazing and really important, you know, and actually like a solution that made sense. But I think that in some of these situations, like one of the things that, that we can think about in the context of abolition is like, okay, what would accountability really look like? What does justice really look like? If someone said something ridiculous. 10 years ago why did they say it are they still saying stuff like that or even more like taking action based on on those kinds of beliefs and if so how are we going to address that you know and and challenging ourselves to think about some of those creative responses and also thinking about kind of like the background I think one of the things that happens that I wonder about a lot is when people actually know someone and they hear this one thing <laughs> or see this one tweet popping up and then they're like, I'm distancing myself from this person. I never want to be associated with them again. And, and one thing that I would wonder is, as in the context of, you know, um, restorative justice or some of these, these principles that we think about in relation to abolition, what was going on with that person? if it's a person you know, you know, thinking about what was going on with that person, what's the actual story? What's the story behind what happened? And, and so I think some of these questions are worth asking ourselves. I also, and maybe this is just because I'm off Twitter for a few weeks, I, I do think about, like, how did social media come to occupy this place? In our society where it's like almost like the be all end all, you know, like if you decided to not be on Twitter, it's like you would be erased from society, you know, and like, what does that stem from? And what does that say about about community in our society, you know, and how isolated people are and how strong connections between people in a lot of ways have been eroded so if people you don't know are attacking you online, you feel like you have no one in the world. Well, like, where are your people who are coming to support you, like, around you in your life, you know? And and that's one other thing that we talk about in evolution is building genuine relationships. So building authentic connections with people that don't have to do with this kind of, like, network that in some ways is very real of course people can build authentic relationships online i would never argue with that but i also think that there are some cases in which we dilute ourselves a little bit into thinking of community as something that is not like actually supportive you know so so that's another just all of these are just questions they're not really answered so i'm sorry i don't really have a great answer to that question but i do think that we need to be asking ourselves questions about relationship building connection and how that figures into an abolitionist world
0: yeah i i, I think uh you know just these relationship building am like not not just becoming best friends with everybody but just communication and getting to know you know backgrounds and where people are coming from like with the the polarization i've had quite a few authors on here talking about polarization and just understanding like how a person was raised where they came from like oh i can kind of see why you believe that you were in this house you know like if somebody was like raised in like a, a a really like christian household where like i'm coming from like a pretty secular household we're gonna be have different views and stuff but yeah just taking a step back and twitter breaks are always good so here's Here's the last question. Very last question. It's going to be for both of you. You each get to have a turn. Since I have two of you, this is great. So for everybody listening right now, and they're like, oh my goodness, Victoria and Maya, they know their stuff. I'm I'm going to turn this podcast off and I'm going to go take some action. I want to do something. I either want to help change the prison systems or what happens after. So both of you, the final question is, what is something someone can do right now right like is it is it getting involved in their community is it looking at local politicians is it looking at the uh you know uh upcoming like uh midterm elections like where is the best starting point for someone who's like yeah our prison system's messed up and I want to do something about it so Victoria you'll go first and we'll do Maya
2: I think that people can get involved where they are, and they should not look at, if we're going to be looking at abolishing the prison system, but not abolishing it into a Mad Max world, but actually putting resources back into the community, start with where you are, you know, see what community supports are needed, you know, to actually ensure people's safety, you know, look at the reforms that are being proposed and ask yourselves, you know, like. Uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about something called non-reformist reforms, meaning the types of reforms we write about in our book that expands this idea of prisons and confinement and punishment into into our communities, into our other institutions, like in our schools, like in our mental health system, like in um, drug treatment centers. And, you know, ask yourself, will this actually support people's underlying needs and help them? Or is this basically another way to surveil, confine and punish them? And then say, how can we shift our resources into the things that we need? You know, so, I mean, looking at schools, you know, why are there so many schools with more school police officers than there are counselors in schools? You know, like what can be done to bolster, you know, the needs of young people? Are there, you know, after-school centers and affordable daycare centers, you know, what kinds of opportunities are there for adults who might not have you know great job opportunities or might not have had great educational opportunities so you can start with where you are you can say you know like i don't want more of my money going into this failed system of policing which only occurs after the fact right they, they don't you know they're not on every corner preventing people from being assaulted or sexually assaulted they're split they show up after the fact and maybe they take a report, um, you know, but they it, it's not necessarily like, oh, there's a police officer on this corner. I will not assault anyone today. It's, you know, uh, if somebody has that in mind, it's that they just go to a different court. Um, so ask yourselves, you know, like, what can I do in my community? What is available? And not necessarily silo working against prisons in all of its manifestations from working on Fighting for affordable housing because everybody needs housing, you know, fighting for affordable health care or universal health care because we all need that as well. So these are all interconnected struggles. I mean, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, you know, the fight for abolition is also a fight for farm workers' rights, a fight for, you know, equal, um, equal opportunity employment, you know, better pay, you know, all of these things that actually support people in society rather than saying, you failed at you know making yourself success in capitalism go away you know like let's shut you off to prison
1: yeah totally all that um and on that note i think that one thing people can do to get involved where they are is something that that might not actually have been as doable a couple years ago but after the pandemic started, there has been this immense flowering of mutual aid efforts around the country that to develop in all kinds of communities. Most listeners probably have one in their neighborhoods or in their towns. And um I, I know I just said, hey, it's good to take a break from social media, but a lot of list groups are being organized through Facebook. And there are, there are all kinds of efforts happening that actually are enacting the opposite of prison, enacting, okay, what would it look like if we supported our neighbors, even people we don't know? And people are, are getting involved in these networks, providing food for their neighbors who don't have access. Someone might say, Help, like I need an air conditioner and someone will say, okay, I have an extra air conditioner. Just like those basic things, those, those things are working against prisons because that's building the world we need to live in where everybody has access to their basic needs. Because as we're talking about prevention, we're talking about how prison does not prevent violence, does not prevent harm. What does prevent harm is providing for people's basic needs. And that's something people can get involved in right away at the ground level. Another thing I'll mention is if people are just getting into this work from the beginning, one thing that's that's really helpful to both that person on the outside and to people in prison is developing a, a pen pal relationship with someone in prison that so we talk about relationship building being one of the foundations of abolition. And I think that, that this type of relationship where you're writing back and forth with someone inside can be really, really powerful. So it's both supporting the person inside in a number of ways, because they are, Like accessing a relationship, many people inside don't have any relationships left on the outside. It's also an advocate on the outside. If someone gets thrown in solitary confinement, here's a person who can actually call the prison and say, hey, I'm looking out for this person. Even just the act of getting a letter shows that there's someone on the outside that cares and that can be powerful. So, so that's an action people can take right away. Black and Pink is one of the groups that is all over the country setting up pen pal friendships between people inside and outside. And one more concrete thing I'd say for people in their communities, there are a lot of campaigns still happening to get cops out of school. And so these are fights that are happening at the local level in school districts. And it's something where you can just go to the district meeting and you can probably talk there, right? Like everyone has a right to a public comment. And you can actually make a big difference because sometimes not a lot of people are going to these meetings. And even if it doesn't happen right away, if you're the only person in the room saying that, It might be the first time that people in that room have even heard that opinion. So you're starting to shift public consciousness. And then in a lot of communities, those movements are already off the ground and they always need more people. So those are just a few ideas.
0: Yeah. That, yeah, that was, that's, that's plenty for people to start getting busy and getting to work after they, after they listen to this. Yeah. It's, You know, I I appreciate you two not only coming on, but just bringing attention to this. I, I truly think like it's one of the bigger issues. Like if we look at the prison system and why so many people are in prison, it it shows all the other societal issues we have. You know what I mean? And that's why I think it's it's so important because it it takes a look at poverty and mental health and addiction and all all these other things. So I really I really appreciate what you both do. So I'm gonna link uh, all of your books. Down below, and Maya, even though you're taking a Twitter break, where can people find both of you and, you know, keep up to date with the work you're doing and things going on? Um like, yeah, lay it on
1: um well, I'll be back on Twitter soon enough. <laughs> it will, last long. and I'm at Maya Shenwar, and just my name. Uh, I also have a website dot um, and then check out Truth Out, where I'm editor-in-chief, and there's a new edition every day. It's just truthout.org. So
2: there's some, some ways to get in touch.
0: Beautiful. Where are you at, Victoria?
2: So I can be found. I have a website, Um I can also be found on Twitter. It's a little more complicated. It's L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. On Twitter, um, I'm also online at a bunch of. Uh, I also write for a variety of different news outlets, including Truthout, which was one of the first places I started regularly contributing um, writings about prison from a prison abolitionist perspective as well.
0: Beautiful. I'll link all that down below. And and yeah, I know you two are super busy, so I appreciate you coming on. And yeah, I'm going to keep reading your books, and maybe I'll have you back on <laughs> do it at the same time to talk about more of this stuff. So yeah, I appreciate it.
2: All right. Thanks so much for having us,
1: Chris. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for all your good questions.
0: Absolutely. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Maya and Victoria. They are so awesome, and I just, you know, I really appreciate people who are out there putting in the work. all right. Like this is something that I'm i, I I'm very vocal about there are a lot of people who just talk to talk and they don't do much. And, you know, sometimes I feel like activists and everything get a bad name. But we need people who are out there actually doing the work. And that is why I respect the hell out of Maya and Victoria and the work they're doing and how passionate they are about this and the writing that they do. But yeah, you know, we actually recorded this uh, episode weeks ago and I've been catching up on my schedule and finally got it out. And I've had some time to think about it. And, you know, I am still wrestling with some of these ideas about abolishing prisons and all that. But I think it's so important to have this diverse range of thoughts and opinions on various solutions to solve some of these problems, you know, because the fact of the matter is at the end of the day, we all know you, me, and everybody else knows that the current justice system is not working and it hasn't worked for a very, very long time. So even though abolishing prisons might sound like an extreme idea, like we need an abundance of ideas to figure this stuff out. And sometimes we have to think way outside of the box to try to start getting these wheels turning so we can see what we can do because right now a lot of people are wasting away in prisons or even struggling after they get out of prison and we gotta do something about it. So make sure you head down to the description, follow Maya and Victoria, grab a copy of this book and keep up to date with all the amazing work that they're doing. I've linked all the resources that we discussed down in the description below. All right, but anyways, uh, before I let you go, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Like I said, I'm over on Substack. I've been doing a lot of writing. I'm currently working on my next book. So all of those updates are over on my social media, but more importantly, I just love chatting with all of you and getting book recommendations, hearing your thoughts about different topics on the podcast and all that. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast. But if you want a really easy way to support the podcast, share this episode, share this episode or any other episode that you like. That really helps out a lot. And it also helps if you leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All right. But another way to support the podcast and it helps you too, There's an affiliate link for BetterHelp down in the description below. Uh, Mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. It's something that's helped me stay sober. It's helped me stay out of trouble because I do therapy. And I personally use BetterHelp online therapy. It's affordable online. You work with a licensed therapist. So if you're interested, check that out. It's down in the description below. You get great therapy and a little bit comes back and supports the podcast. All right. So another huge thanks to Maya and Victoria. Make sure you follow them and check out their book. And for all of you, have an amazing rest of your day. And on Wednesday, I will be back with another episode. And we're going to be talking about drugs with Dr. Carl Hart. So you don't want to miss that. So stay tuned. All right. Have a good one. And I'll see you next time.